0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall. The Mysteries of Udolpho. By Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1. Chapter 1. Part 2. When they reached the fishing-house, she missed her bracelet, and recollected that she had taken it from her arm after dinner, and had left it on the table when she went to walk. After a long search, in which Emily was very active, she was compelled to resign herself to the loss of it. What made this bracelet valuable to her was a miniature of her daughter, to which it was attached, esteemed a striking resemblance, and which had been painted only a few months before. When Emily was convinced that the bracelet was really gone, she blushed and became thoughtful. That some stranger had been in the fishing-house during her absence, Her lute and the additional lines of a pencil had already informed her. From the purport of these lines it was not unreasonable to believe that the poet, the musician, and the thief were the same person. But though the music she had heard, the written lines she had seen, and the disappearance of the picture, formed a combination of circumstances very remarkable, she was irresistibly restrained from mentioning them, secretly determining, however, Never again to visit the fishing house without Monsieur or Madame saint Aubert. They returned pensively to the chateau, Emily musing on the incident which had just occurred, Saint Aubert reflecting with placid gratitude on the blessings he possessed, and Madame saint Aubert somewhat disturbed and perplexed by the loss of her daughter's picture. As they drew near the house, they observed an unusual bustle about it, the sound of voices was distinctly heard, servants and horses were seen passing between the trees and at length the wheels of a carriage rolled along. Having come within view of the front of the château, a Landau, with smoking horses, appeared on the little lawn before it. Saint-Aubert perceived the liveries of his brother-in-law, and, in the parlour, he found M. and Madame Canel already entered. They had left Paris some days before, and were on the way to their estate only ten leagues distant from La Vallée, and which M. Canel had purchased several years before of Saint-Aubert. This gentleman was the only brother of Madame Saint-Aubert, but the ties of relationship having never been strengthened by congeniality of character, the intercourse between them had not been frequent. Monsieur Canel had lived altogether in the world. His aim had been consequence, splendour was the object of his taste, and his address and knowledge of character had carried him forward to the attainment of almost all that he had courted by a man of such a disposition it is not surprising that the virtues of Saint-Aubert should be overlooked, or that his pure taste, simplicity, and moderated wishes were considered as marks of a weak intellect, and of confined views. The marriage of his sister with Saint-Aubert had been mortifying to his ambition, for he had designed that the matrimonial connection she formed should assist him to attain the consequence which he so much desired, "'and some offers were made her by persons "'whose rank and fortune flattered his warmest hope. "'But his sister, who was then addressed also by Saint-Aubert, "'perceived, or thought she perceived, "'that happiness and splendour were not the same, "'and she did not hesitate to forego the last "'for the attainment of the former. "'Whether Monsieur Canel thought them the same or not, "'he would readily have sacrificed his sister's peace "'to the gratification of his own ambition, "'and, on her marriage with Saint-Aubert, expressed in private his contempt of her spiritless conduct, and of the connection which it permitted. Madame Saint-Aubert, though she concealed this insult from her husband, felt, perhaps, for the first time, resentment lighted in her heart, and though a regard for her own dignity, united with considerations of prudence, restrained her expression of this resentment, there was ever after a mild reserve in her manner towards Monsieur Canel, which he both understood and felt." In his own marriage, he did not follow his sister's example. His lady was an Italian, and an heiress by birth, and, by nature and education, was a vain and frivolous woman. They now determined to pass the night with Saint-Aubert, and, as the chateau was not large enough to accommodate their servants, the latter were dismissed to the neighbouring village. When the first compliments were over, and the arrangements for the night made, Monsieur Canel began the display of his intelligence and his connections, while Saint-Aubert, who had been long enough in retirement to find these topics recommended by their novelty, listened, with a degree of patience and attention, which his guest mistook for the humility of wonder. The latter, indeed, described the few festivities which the turbulence of that period permitted to the court of Henry the Third, with a minuteness, that somewhat recompensed for his ostentation. But, when he came to speak of the character of the Duc de Joyeux, of a secret treaty which he knew to be negotiating with the porte, and of the light in which Henry of Navarre was received, M. Saint-Aubert recollected enough of his former experience to be assured that his guests could be only of an inferior class of politicians, and that, from the importance of the subjects upon which he committed himself, he could not be of the rank to which he pretended to belong. The opinions delivered by M. Quenel were such as Saint-Aubert forbore to reply to, for he knew that his guest had neither humanity to feel nor discernment to perceive what is just. Madame Canel, meanwhile, was expressing to Madame Aubert her astonishment that she could bear to pass her life in this remote corner of the world, as she called it, and describing, from a wish probably of exciting envy, the splendour of the balls, banquets, and processions which had just been given by the court, in honour of the nuptials of the Duc de Joyeux, with Margareta of Lorraine, the sister of the Queen." She described with equal minuteness the magnificence she had seen, and that from which she had been excluded, while Emily's vivid fancy, as she listened with the ardent curiosity of youth, heightened the scenes she heard of, and Madame saint looking on her family, felt as a tear stole to her eye, that though splendour may grace happiness, virtue only can bestow it. "'It is now twelve years, saint said Monsieur Quenel, "'since I purchased your family estate.' "'Somewhere thereabout,' replied Saint-Aubert, suppressing a sigh. "'It is near five years since I have been there,' resumed Canel, "'for Paris and its neighbourhood is the only place in the world to live in, "'and I am so immersed in politics, and have so many affairs of moment on my hands, "'that I find it difficult to steal away even for a month or two. Saint-Aubert remaining silent, Monsieur canel proceeded. "'I have sometimes wondered how you, who have lived in the capital, "'and have been accustomed to company,' can exist elsewhere, especially in so remote a country as this, where you can neither hear nor see anything, and can in short be scarcely conscious of life. I live for my family and myself, said Saint-Aubert. I am now contented to know only happiness. Formerly I knew life. I mean to expend thirty or forty thousand livres on improvements, said M. Quenelle, without seeming to notice the words of Saint-Aubert for I design next summer to bring here my friends, the Duc de Durfort and the Marquis Ramont, to pass a month or two with me. To St. Aubert's inquiry, as to these intended improvements, he replied, that he should take down the whole east wing of the château, and raise upon the site a set of stables. Then I shall build, said he, a salle à manger, a salon, a salle à commune, and a number of rooms for servants, for at present, there is not accommodation for a third part of my own people. It accommodated our father's household, said Saint-Aubert, grieved that the old mansion was to be thus improved, and that was not a small one. Our notions are somewhat enlarged since those days, said M. Quenel. What was then thought a decent style of living would not now be endured. Even the calm Saint-Aubert blushed at these words, but his anger soon yielded to contempt, The ground about the chateau is encumbered with trees. I mean to cut some of them down. "'Cut down the trees, too,' said Saint-Aubert. "'Certainly. Why should I not?' they interrupt my prospects. There is a chestnut which spreads its branches before the whole south side of the chateau, and which is so ancient that they tell me the hollow of its trunk will hold a dozen men. Your enthusiasm will scarcely contend that there can be either use or beauty in such a sapless old tree as this.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Saint-Aubert, "'you surely will not destroy that noble chestnut "'which has flourished for centuries. "'The glory of the estate! "'It was in its maturity when the present mansion was built. "'How often in my youth have I climbed among its broad branches, "'and sat embowered amidst a world of leaves, "'while the heavy shower has plattered above, "'and not a raindrop reached me! "'How often I have sat with a book in my hand!' "'sometimes reading and sometimes looking out between the branches "'upon the wide landscape and the setting sun, till twilight came, "'and brought the birds home to their little nests among the leaves. "'How often! But pardon me,' added St. Aubert, "'recollecting that he was speaking to a man "'who could neither comprehend nor allow his feelings. "'I am talking of times and feelings as old-fashioned as the taste "'that would spare that venerable tree.' "'It will certainly come down,' said Monsieur Kennel i believe i shall plant some lombardy poplars among the clumps of chestnut that i shall leave of the avenue madame canel is partial to the poplar and tells me how much it adorns a villa of her uncle not far from venice on the banks of the brenta indeed continued saint aubert where its spiry form is intermingled with the pine and the cypress and where it plays over light and elegant porticos and colonnades it unquestionably adorns the scene but among the giants of the forest, and near a heavy Gothic mansion. "'Well, my good sir,' said M. canel "'I will not dispute you. You must return to Paris before our ideas can at all agree. "'But, à propos of Venice, I have some thoughts of going thither next summer. Events may call me to take possession of that same villa, too, which they tell me is the most charming that can be imagined. In that case... I shall leave the improvements I mentioned to another year, and I may, perhaps, be tempted to stay some time in Italy. Emily was somewhat surprised to hear him talk of being tempted to remain abroad, after he had mentioned his presence to be so necessary at Paris, that it was with difficulty he could steal away for a month or two. But Saint-Aubert understood the self-importance of the man too well to wonder at this trait, and the possibility that these projected improvements might be deferred gave him a hope that they might never take place. Before they separated for the night, M. Canel desired to speak with Saint-Aubert alone, and they retired to another room, where they remained a considerable time. The subject of this conversation was not known, but, whatever it might be, Saint-Aubert, when he returned to the supper-room, seemed much disturbed, and a shade of sorrow sometimes fell upon his features that alarmed Madame Saint-Aubert. When they were alone, she was tempted to inquire the occasion of it, but the delicacy of mind, which had ever appeared in his conduct, restrained her. She considered that, if Saint-Aubert wished her to be acquainted with the subject of his concern, he would not wait on her inquiries. On the following day, before M. Canel departed, he had a second conference with Saint-Aubert. The guests, after dining at the chateau, set out in the cool of the day for Eperville, whither they gave him and Madame Saint-Aubert a pressing invitation, prompted rather by the vanity of displaying their splendour than by a wish to make their friends happy. Emily returned with delight to the liberty which their presence had restrained, to her books, her walks, and the rational conversation of, of M. and Madame Saint-Aubert, who seemed to rejoice no less that they were delivered from the shackles which arrogance and frivolity had imposed. Madame Saint-Aubert excused herself from sharing their usual evening walk, complaining that she was not quite well, and Saint-Aubert and Emily went out together. They chose a walk towards the mountains, intending to visit some old pensioners of Saint-Aubert, which from his very moderate income he contrived to support, though it is probable M. Quenel, with his very large one, could not have afforded this. After distributing to his pensioners their weekly stipends, listening patiently to the complaints of some, redressing the grievances of others, and softening the discontents of all, by the look of sympathy and the smile of benevolence, Saint-Aubert returned home through the woods, where, at fall of eve, the fairy-people throng, in various games and revelry, to pass the summer night, as village stories tell. THOMPSON The evening gloom of woods was always delightful to me, said Saint-Aubert, whose mind now experienced the sweet calm which results from the consciousness of having done a beneficent action— and which disposes it to receive pleasure from every surrounding object. I remember that in my youth this gloom used to call forth to my fancy a thousand fairy visions, and romantic images. And, I own, I am not yet wholly insensible of that high enthusiasm which wakes the poet's dream. I can linger with solemn steps under the deep shades, send forward a transforming eye into the distant obscurity, and listen with thrilling delight to the mystic murmuring of the woods." "'Oh, my dear father,' said Emily, while a sudden tear started to her eye, "'how exactly you describe what I have felt so often, "'and which I thought nobody had ever felt but myself! "'But hark, here comes the sweeping sound over the wood-tops. "'Now it dies away! "'How solemn the stillness that succeeds! "'Now the breeze swells again. "'It is like the voice of some supernatural being, "'the voice of the spirit of the woods that watches over them by night.' "'Ah! what light is yonder? "'But it is gone, and now it gleams again "'near the root of that large chestnut. "'Look, sir!' "'Are you such an admirer of nature?' "'said St. Aubert, and so little acquainted "'with her appearances as not to know "'that for the glow-worm? "'But come,' he added gaily, "'step a little further and we shall see fairies, "'perhaps they are often companions. "'The glow-worm lends his light, "'and they in return charm him with music, "'and the dance. "'Do you see nothing tripping yonder?' Emily laughed. "'Well, my dear sir,' said she, "'since you allow of this alliance, "'I may venture to own I have anticipated you, "'and almost dare venture to repeat some verses "'I made one evening in these very woods.' "'Nay,' replied Saint-Aubert, "'dismiss the almost, and venture quite. "'Let us hear what vagaries fancy has been playing in your mind. "'If she has given you one of her spells, "'you need not envy those of the fairies.' If it is strong enough to enchant your judgment, sir, said Emily, while I disclose her images, I need not envy them. The lines go in a sort of tripping measure, which I thought might suit the subject well enough, but I fear they are too irregular. The Glowworm. How pleasant is the green wood's deep matted shade on a midsummer's eve, when the fresh rain is o'er, when the yellow beams slope and sparkle through the glade, and swiftly in the thin air the light swallows soar. But sweeter, sweeter still, when the sun sinks to rest, and twilight comes on, with the fairies so gay tripping through the forest-walk, where flowers, unpressed, bow not their tall heads beneath their frolic play. To music's softest sounds they dance away the hour, till moonlight steals down among the travelling leaves, and checkers all the ground, and guides them to the bower, the long-haunted bower, where the nightingale grieves." Then no more they dance till her sad song is done, But silent as the night to her morning attend, And often as her dying notes their pity have won, They vow all her sacred haunts from mortals to defend. When down among the mountains sinks the evening star, And the changing moon forsakes the shadowy sphere, How cheerless would they be, though they fairies are, If I with my pale light came not near! Yet cheerless, though they'd be, They're ungrateful to my love, for often when the traveller's benighted on his way, and I glimmer in his path, and would guide him through the grove, they bind me in their magic spells to lead him far astray, and in the mire to leave him, till the stars are all burnt out, while in strange-looking shapes they frisk about the ground, and afar in the woods they raise a dismal shout, till I shrink into my cell again for terror of the sound." But see where all the tiny elves come dancing in a ring, With the merry merry pipe, and the tabor and the horn, And the timbrel so clear, and the lute with dulcet string. Then round about the oak they go, till peeping of the morn. Down yonder glade two lovers steal, to shun the fairy queen, Who frowns upon their plighted vows, and jealous is of me, That yester-eve I lighted them along the dewy green, To seek the purple flower whose juice from all her spells can free. And now, to punish me, she keeps afar her joking band. With the merry merry pipe, and the tabor, and the lute, If I creep near yonder oak, she will wave her fairy wand, And to me the dance will cease, and the music all be mute. Ah, had I but that purple flower whose leaves her charms can foil, And knew like fays to draw the juice and throw it on the wind, I'd be her slave no longer, nor the traveller beguile and help all faithful lovers, nor fear the fairy kind. But soon the vapour of the woods will wander afar, and the fickle moon will fade, and the stars disappear. Then cheerless will they be, though they fairies are, if I with my pale light come not near. Whatever Saint-Aubert might think of the stanzas, he would not deny his daughter the pleasure of believing that he approved them. And, having given his commendation, he sunk into a reverie, and they walked on in silence a faint erroneous ray glanced from the imperfect surfaces of things flung half an image on the straining eye while waving woods and villages and streams and rocks and mountain tops that long retain the ascending gleam are all one swimming scene uncertain if beheld thompson saint Aubert continued silent till he reached the chateau where his wife had retired to her chamber the languor and dejection that had lately oppressed her and which the exertion called forth by the arrival of her guests had suspended, now returned with increased effect. On the following day, symptoms of fever appeared, and Saint-Aubert, having sent for medical advice, learned that her disorder was a fever of the same nature as that from which he had lately recovered. She had indeed taken the infection, during her attendance upon him, and her constitution being too weak to throw out the disease immediately, it had lurked in her veins, and occasioned the heavy languor of which she had complained. Saint-Aubert, whose anxiety for his wife overcame every other consideration, detained the physician in his house. He remembered the feelings and the reflections that had called a momentary gloom upon his mind on the day when he had last visited the fishing-house, in company with Madame Saint-Aubert, and he now admitted a presentiment that this illness would be a fatal one. But he effectually concealed this from her, and from his daughter, whom he endeavoured to reanimate with hopes that her constant assiduities would not be unavailing. The physician, when asked by Saint-Aubert for his opinion of the disorder, replied, that the event of it depended upon circumstances which he could not ascertain. Madame Saint-Aubert seemed to have formed a more decided one, but her eyes only gave hints of this. She frequently fixed them upon her anxious friends with an expression of pity, and of tenderness, as if she anticipated the sorrow that awaited them, and that seemed to say it was for their sakes only, for their sufferings, that she regretted life. On the seventh day the disorder was at its crisis. The physician assumed a graver manner, which she observed, and took occasion, when her family had once quitted the chamber, to tell him that she perceived her death was approaching. "'Do not attempt to deceive me,' said she. "'I feel that I cannot long survive. "'I am prepared for the event.' I have long, I hope, been preparing for it. Since I have not longed to live, do not suffer a mistaken compassion to induce you to flatter my family with false hopes. If you do, their affliction will only be the heavier when it arrives. I will endeavour to teach them resignation by my example. The physician was affected. He promised to obey her, and told Saint-Aubert somewhat abruptly that there was nothing to expect. The latter was not philosopher enough to restrain his feelings when he received this information, but a consideration of the increased affliction which the observance of his grief would occasion his wife, enabled him after some time to command himself in her presence. Emily was at first overwhelmed with the intelligence. Then, deluded by the strength of her wishes, a hope sprung up in her mind that her mother would yet recover, and to this she pertinaciously adhered almost to the last hour— The progress of the disorder was marked, on the side of Madame Saint-Aubert, by patient suffering and subjected wishes. The composure with which she awaited her death could be derived only from the retrospect of a life governed, as far as human frailty permits, by a consciousness of being always in the presence of the Deity, and by the hope of a higher world. But her piety could not entirely subdue the grief of parting from those whom she so dearly loved. During these, her last hours, she conversed as much with St. Aubert and Emily, on the prospect of futurity, and on other religious topics. The resignation she expressed, with the firm hope of meeting in a future world the friends she left in this, and the effort which sometimes appeared to conceal her sorrow at this temporary separation, frequently affected St. Aubert so much as to oblige him to leave the room. Having indulged his tears a while, he would dry them, and return to the chamber with a countenance composed— by an endeavour which did but increase his grief. Never had Emily felt the importance of the lessons which had taught her to restrain her sensibility, so much as in these moments, and never had she practised them with a triumph so complete. But when the last was over, she sunk at once under the pressure of her sorrow, and then perceived that it was hope, as well as fortitude, which had hitherto supported her. Saint-Aubert was for a time too devoid of comfort himself to bestow any on his daughter." End of Book 1, Chapter 1, Part 2. Recorded by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, December 2008.